Bonjour, and welcome to Paris. I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, and today my guest is John Lahr, a longtime theater critic and feature writer for the New Yorker magazine, where he wrote basically many biographies of about 10,000 words each, and about 40 or 50 of those have been published. Uh, he's a biographer of uh, Tennessee Williams, Joe Orton, uh, Frank Sinatra, and as he is the son of the Cowardly Lion, notes on the Cowardly Lion about his father, uh, Bert Lahr. And um, most recently, uh, Arthur Miller, American Witness for the uh, Yale University Jewish Live Series. Uh, welcome to Paris, John. Thank you. Yeah, I, you know, I'd like to go back and almost like a movie, start somewhere in the middle and then get back to uh, Arthur's childhood. Um, February the 10th, 1949, the uh, Lexington and Concord of, uh, of American theater, I, I would say. Uh, 1949, because uh, that was the opening of Death of, De a Salesman. Death of a Salesman in Philadelphia. Yeah, well, it was uh, seismic, and uh, I, I suppose you'd have to say it. It, it grew the theater up, the American theater up in one, uh, one gesture because it sort of plumbed an aspect of America which really hasn't been um, flushed out into the open, which had to do with what Veblen called uh, uh, the uh, in invidious comparison because Willie Loman, and what we're seeing is the inside of his mind. In, in fact, that's what uh, Miller's original title of the play was. Uh, he's driven crazy by envy, by the comparison, by what his what people have, what he wants. So he's he's the dreams of wanting, and the fear of losing are driving him crazy. And and an event and and in in the end are what uh, essentially uh, leads to his his suicide. Um, so that was something that had, I mean, Miller always felt that it's one thing to describe an idea, but a play had to be the emotion, uh, had to create, create the atmosphere on stage. And that's what he did. A lot of, a lot of uh, American theater influenced by the cinema uh, to some degree was a lot of exposition. Uh, and what he made happen on stage magically with the help of great actors and Kazan, really Kazan, was uh, this sort of overwhelming sense of, uh, alternating sense of exhilaration and exhaustion, which is, uh, I think, is what capitalism, and uh, certainly what he thought capitalism. Do you think the uh, audience was feeling that exhaustion? What? Do you think the, that original audience was feeling that exhaustion? At I the think end? they were living it. I think that's what not. I think that that's what it identified in them. And in great theater, what you know, it, we have very, very few words for pain. Uh, and uh, that's one of the reasons why theater is valuable. Is it sort of names our pain and our our loss uh, in a way that the culture tends to for various obvious reasons uh, uh, dissociate from. So it was a shock, and the shock, uh, Miller and Kazan were standing backstage, and the play ended, and there was nothing. There was no sound. There was nothing. And then, I mean, the and the the the, the actors were backstage waiting to take their bows, and they there was nothing there. And then suddenly, uh, 
you know, it exploded, and uh, they knew they they knew how uh, knew they had a hit. And from the point of view of Kazan and Miller, as Kazan writes in his wonderful uh, memoir of life, uh, luck was loose. <laughs> they could do anything. Uh, they were uh, they were the the new the new team um, or one of the new teams. And as it happened. Um, Kazan had directed uh, Miller's first Broadway play, uh, you know, all, all My Sons. And that production had attracted him, uh, him as a director to Tennessee Williams. So Kazan found himself directing almost back to back the two great uh, plays of the, of the- 20th century. Of, well, really of the 20th century, because although it's true that a long day's journey into night was a, a great play it was published posthumously and uh, it they, these two plays certainly brought the theater to a new uh lyrical and expressive uh height american theater yeah i mean to some degree uh, we we need to convert kazan so we can publish him in the jewish live series he has such a oh, his life. He's there's no need for a, a, a memoir about Kazan because although the, a life is astonishing. His his life and his accomplishment are Herculean. I mean, there's nobody remotely close uh, on either side of the Atlantic who had a more uh, penetrating effect on the theatrical art than Kazan. He he directed plays. He started the actor studio. He was in the group theater. He uh, he direct, as I say, he directed those plays and shaped them, and uh, went on to be the first co-artistic uh, director of Lincoln Center. So I mean, he had Ed plus was a great and famous uh, uh, promiscuous, you might say, uh, lover, and uh, who believed in promiscuity as a stimulation to his art. It was psychologically. I met him at mm -hmm. the end of his life, and he, he, he prior, was, prior prior to beginning getting the Hollywood the award that uh, Scorsese handed him. Oh, af um, I think afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, I think, uh, and what was surprising, he was by then a few sandwiches short of a picnic. Uh, but he was. What was shocking about meeting him was how vigorous he was, mm -hmm. how strong. I mean, you could feel. If that was his charisma at the end of his life, it's hard to imagine what it was like. He was a dynamo. That was, that's the only thing you can say. He was a dynamo. He's great. Well, um, and also, you know, when he's starting with Boomerang, when he went into the streets, and then obviously with Waterfront, he uh, moved the, the camera out of the uh, out of the confines of a studio and yeah, that was another. And I, I didn't even mention his his films. Right. I mean, you know. Yeah. yeah all those. Those, I mean, that, oh yeah, he also did he did uh, on the waterfront and the <laughs> film of uh, a streetcar, which is really, I think, his best film in many ways, and Splendor in the Grass, and and on and on. Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah. very important figure and a very important to and crucial figure to Miller's life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they did those two performances, and then unfortunately they had a, they had a falling out, which we can talk about somewhat later, uh, and and all the HU the UAC activity. Uh, I I I sense from from reading your book and what I knew about Miller beforehand that uh, there were two factors that had a, a huge influence on his on his work. Uh, one was his family, and secondly was the fact of being Jewish in America at that time. 
Yes, I, I think certainly, um, I think the more <clears throat> enduring uh, influence was his family and the uh, the uh, issues underlying the sort of family dynamic, which were continually being masked in, in the plays, but really there in almost all his major plays contain elements of uh, autobiographical issues, which he's able to admit and explore through uh, a, a, another metaphor, you know. Um, the, the, if I can run you through this. Sure. It, it, when Miller, Miller idealized his father and his father had had an extraordinary journey to America. He, they, the family emigrated to America from Poland in the 1880s, but they left Miller's father, Isidore, back in Poland because he was considered slow and the family didn't want uh, to be turned back at, uh, at Ellis Island because of it. But the the person they left him, the, fa the father Isidore uh, with, died. And so Isidore at the age of six made the journey from Poland via Hamburg to America alone, a three week uh, trip alone at six. Um, and he was he he immediately went into the family business, which was um, uh, you know uh, making clothes. And he wrote he was a big he grew he grew he he was a big man, an affable man uh, who, at the age of thirty two, had built the company Miltex into a very very successful business. Um, now. Miller, in his in Time Beds, his autobiography, just and when he talks about his father, he talks about somebody who was, um, he he was a he was he says that you know he he was a cloaky he made clothes and he was a successful businessman. He doesn't say that his father's business, Miltex, was a, one one of the two or three biggest clothing manufacturers in America. So the, this is a crucial point because Miller. Miller grew up a rich boy. Seriously, he uh, the family. He, I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. At that age, at, at 32 or in 1910, actually, Isidore was doing so well in the business that a man a a, a man who was a sponger in the clothing business. Um, explain explain it for those who I'm don't. Not, I don't really know what a sponger is, <laughs> but, it, but it was it's a sort of a lower it's a it's a it's a job within the 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 industry which Miller Miller didn't trust spongers, but this guy came to him. His name was William Fox, and he wanted to. He was asking for a loan for fifty thousand dollars, which is the equivalent now of like a million. To go, he had an idea to go and make movies in Hollywood, and so. Isidore passed on this and he became otherwise had he taken them up he would have been part of 20th Century Fox and this became an issue in the family when later on they they found themselves in dire financial straits with the depression which we'll get to anyway so at 32 this big handsome guy who's really wealthy decides to take a bride and he <clears throat> He it's a sort of business deal, but he he marries a 17 year old cum laude graduate 
called Augusta Barnett, who could paint, uh, could play the piano, could sing, could tell a joke, and according to Miller, uh, was could could read a book in a day. She was a and nobody in his family except Augusta read. I mean, certainly Miller didn't. Now, the thing that Augusta didn't know, and the thing that makes all this exposition important is the man who built this business, the man who Miller idealized, could not read or write. He was entirely illiterate. And when Augusta, now married, discovered that he couldn't read or write, she was so shocked that she vomited. The, the fact of the matter is that they, they lived, the, the arrangement worked in the sense that they lived at the, uh, at the north end of Central Park in Harlem which had 200,000 Jews in Harlem. Uh, and in New York at the time had 14 million, uh, which was 14% of all the Jewish immigrants in America. So they lived in the heart of a Jewish community, but they were definitely uh, amalgamated into another universe. They had, they had a chauffeur that drove them, uh, drove them to work. They had a place in uh, a, a summer cottage. They had uh, the Kanabi pianos and maids. And they were really living the life of Riley. Um, and the, but the problem was and remained that, the, that Isidore understood his business, but nothing else and had no other interests. And she did so that there really was no means of uh, of social, there was no social uh, or currency between them. They couldn't, they didn't really relate uh, or share a lot of uh, mutual interests. And, and and Miller was the not the star of his family. There were three children. Um, the first was Kermit, who was the star, who was handsome, uh, very good at school, uh, an athletic. And then there was Miller, and then in 1920, who was born in 1915, and his sister, uh, Joan, uh, Joan was uh, born in 1920. So, what's interesting about it is that Miller actually was grew up in a in a in a household which whose mythology was that they were happy and and lucky and in a in in a in a very uh, fortunate position, but underneath that. And this is the thing that Miller would go on to sort of flush out was a masquerade, a lie. Uh, and that he Miller, even as a young age, because kids do this, could understand or intuit a kind of disdain his mother had for his father, which got worse as the situation, uh, their economic situation changed. They, the, it, it, and it was upsetting on some level to Miller because he idealized his father and his powerful position and, and, the, and the sort of the way people looked at him uh, and them uh, in, when he went down to the factory because the factory actually was 800 people he employed uh, in his, in his uh, factory. And the, the, so Miller actually was... Uh, very early on, had, uh, was sort of 
had his own psychological space. He 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 loved his brother, but also obviously competed with him and hated him in that regard. And he was no longer the child. And he and he he says that he very early on had his own psychological space. He 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 was a sleepwalker, a very sign of ter inner turbulence, and not understanding it, of course, but nonetheless experiencing it. And also, he 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 says and writes in his autobiography that he thought about running away from home at least three times a month. He did when he could ride his bike. He would ride his bike up into Harlem and around to escape the undertow of the of the family life, which was corrosive on some level. And uh, he also dissociated which is the sort of, he started fictionalizing his family. So that on the one hand, he knew they were lovely and caring. And on the other hand, he created characters out of them that were their dark side because he couldn't tolerate the dark side. He wanted to, as all children do, wanted to hold on to the good parent. Anyway, so he that, that does translate over time into Miller's, from when he could understand it stand it or try to understand it through his writing uh an interest in masquerade uh the family masquerading of feelings people denying uh, or being not able to see how they uh mask their hostility and the family the general tone of the family uh, was a repressed feeling i think nothing was everything on everything on the surface ran smoothly a lot of all this stuff was going on uh underneath the uh, apparent calm of affluence and in the the uh, the uh, the plays that that is one of the great aspects of his plays is, and one of the things that he also zeroed in on, which is as relevant now in the age of the big lie as uh, it was then, is is how uh, how families create a network of forgetting, of, of, of projecting uh, their uh, own uh, uh, violent innocence, uh, they're projecting into others the feelings that they have. And the the aggressive, uh, vindictive feelings that they have, and therefore, in their own eyes, remaining innocent of uh, of their own aggression. Anyway, um, so that that was the climate, and Miller was a really terrible student. He was so bad that he couldn't he he could even in the depression he could not get into a university. He tried twice to apply to the University of Michigan and failed. And finally uh, wrote, sort of, as we say in England, blagged his way in, uh, uh, he, in, into it. And th th that's when his fortunes started to change. But he, was, he really was a, had a passion for ignorance when he was growing up, partially because he idealized his father and he on some level knew that, that he didn't, there was a sort of Oedipal struggle, which he, he really succeeded in ultimately in his success within, for his mother's attention. He, 
killing his father, uh, you know, surpassing him, which he didn't want to do. He was aware of that, sensitive to it. And uh, then at about the age of 17 or 18, he started to read. And in the two years that he worked in a warehouse, you know, he he started to write and read and he had he was always a great mimic and he could tell a very good joke uh, if you can tell a joke well you can you're, you're really talking it's about structure and timing and miller always uh, miller's way of writing he, he wrote by ear not by head and he he said that if you if he could hear it he could write it he had to hear it first and so the, the, his ability to mimic people and to be funny um, uh, helped him, as it were, get into the in interest in, in writing. At a, when he was about 19 or 20, he wrote, at the time on radio, there were these amateur hours, and he wrote a piece and submitted it. And the producer came out and asked to see the piece and Miller flew home thinking well he was going to take it but he didn't take it what he did do was give it to an, another another person to perform mm -hmm. so it was performed but not uh, attributed by, by and Miller sort of got but it but it, Miller is a, Miller got the feeling that yeah well he you could see that he had a certain proficiency in in writing but uh, but no real experience and the experience only began as a sophomore at the University of Michigan. I mean, at the time in the Depression, there was no work. So you could, and he could, he bet on his imagination. I mean, he bet there was no, there was no work. You could study. And at the end of your study, you'd just be getting a welfare check because there was nothing happening. Um, and at, at, in the, in the soft in his sophomore year, rather than come home and spend the little money that he did have uh, traveling home, he stayed and he decided there was something called the Hopwood Award, and which offered students various size prizes for literary accomplishment and for writing a play. There was a, I think it was a thousand dollars he got if he could. That was the prize. And if he got that kind of money, I, I mean, I don't think it was quite that high. It was two fifty, and he shared he it with. Okay, there, there, were, there were two two hundred and. He basically it was a dead heat uh, with another yeah. writer. All right. Well, you remember my. I, well, I read it more recently than you have. <laughs> Indeed. Um, anyway, that he he decided to go for that, and he sat down, and he didn't. The guy across the hall was actually in the 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 university theater and he he asked them how long an act was and the guy said 30 minutes an act and he sat down and he had an alarm clock and he set it for 30 minutes and he just wrote he wrote this play which is published called no villain and it's absolutely autobiographical it's about the argument and it's about two or three things in it there's a hint of this sort of edible victory he has over the father the mother's obsession with him uh and the, the older brother, Kermit's sort of heroic uh, endorsement of the of his uh, Arthur's literary dream. Now it's important in the, in Arthur's whole story to know that 
Kermit's ambition was to be a writer. And Kermit was the student. And, and Kermit was being the oldest, all, was, was a, Kermit was an unusually idealistic fellow, always. He, he was the card-carrying communist. Of, I mean, Miller flirted with left-wing uh, causes and w certainly was uh, strongly political, but he never actually, I don't think, joined the party. He was, he was within... But I think he had, he had a, a, a compassion for the working class. He was a carpenter. Well, yeah, being and, the Mar and, he had Marxist, Marxist ideas. Right. But at the time... The, the 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 economy was in free fall. Nobody knew what anything about. There was no leadership. There was no leadership in um, in in the country. And 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 worse at home, Izzy, this power, deflated like a tire. He had he lost his business, uh, he, or was in dire situ straits, and he. Um, not only did he, he that he 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 slept, he seemed un, un, uh, unable to to sort of motivate himself. So Miller was doubly alienated. There was a and, and traumatized because th th there was no leadership. There was no you know he was at a loss. And the you know Freud said that trauma is helplessness experienced, and that is, I I in my opinion, there he he because he comes back to the depression all the time. Miller actually had two traumas. The first trauma, which he could, which it was indigestible, was the depression. And the second, which we'll get to, was Marilyn Monroe. He never could understand that. He never could understand how he couldn't, or he couldn't help her, and why she wouldn't receive whatever he had to give. It never, he, he came back to her long after she was dead in various plays and worked her into the stories because it, it was, it was somehow such a challenge to his notion of his own power, which was enormous as a, as a writer and his goodness as an individual, which was also an obsession with him as a public figure. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the, uh, he had good tutelage uh, at University of Michigan. And he and his brother had, because he won that prize, uh, he switched his major from journalism, which is what he'd gone into uh, Michigan to do, uh, just really to pacify his father, because he had to make a living somehow when he, after the education. The way they worked it out was that Arthur would go to college and the brother, the older brother would go and support his father and help keep him, keep the, try to get the business back on track. And then after the first year, Arthur uh, would then come and work for the father and, and Kermit, who was already at NYU, would finish his uh, second year and they would spell each other year by, and that way, Together, they would get their college educations. But the point is, and this was crucial to the, his for his whole life, Arthur welched on the deal. He didn't do it. He 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 walked on it. He didn't really support the family. Uh, he he was interested in 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 playwriting, 
And he sort of welched on the deal. And The Price, which is Arthur's last great play, 1967, is an absolutely exact theatricalization of the guilt and issues between the successful, he's an architect in the play, but the successful writer and and his brother, because what, by welching on that deal, so to speak, Arthur consigned his brother to a kind of indentured servitude to the father. Um, the brother then went to war uh, as he entered as a private, uh, he was uh, demobbed as a captain. He was a he was a war hero. He fought in the Battle of the Bulge. He al um, almost had his feet amputated. He went back to he left the hospital to go back to fight. And when he came back, he was you know seriously traumatized. He had a breakdown. But what they discovered, what both of them discovered, which was the issue, which is disguised in all my sons, is that his parents actually had some money left over. They didn't have to have a son or sons as they wished in the business, but they wanted them in the business. So the lie of the parent, they, in the name of the family and to keep the family together, they lied to their boys. And what that meant was that one of them's Kermit's life was essentially ruined. He never and, went back. He went. He never went back to college. As he, as his son Ross uh, writes, his son. Well, his uh, Ross uh, is my 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 mole. Ross <laughs> is was uh, who spoke at Arthur's funeral. Who knew Arthur, Marilyn, and the whole family extremely well. Who's a professor of English and who edited the three volumes of the Library of America's books on Philip Roth, mm -hmm. uh, you know, is a very reliable witness and a very uh, smart man. And he liked my stuff and helped me get the focus on, on what the family actually was and how it worked so that it, it gave, um, he added an enormous uh, value to my book. And in fact, gave me, I mean, biographers have to have luck. You have to get lucky and hit my luck. Unless you're Robert Carroll and you move to the hill country and become a Texan. Yeah, but I don't have 15 years to work on this book. I had right. I did take 12 <laughs> to write Tennessee Williams's biography, but uh, he did he did write he did share a letter that Arthur wrote to his parents in 1956, uh, explaining that he was in love with Marilyn Monroe and setting out the problems in his marriage first marriage and how he felt about Marilyn, which is sensational for the simple reason that it tells the story in 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 plain language and exposes in a in the best possible way oh, the real voice of Arthur Miller, not the literary voice. Mm -hmm. You feel much more of his passion and also his um idealization. Uh you can see what happens in his relationship, which isn't uh, the mystery but has been sort of ballyhooed in all the books about Maryland. Let, let me jump back to a, a Death of a Salesman. We don't, we don't have that much more time. We, we could speak for three hours here. I asked you one question, John, and we're still working on it, which is great. Uh, 
as you're describing, uh, you know, his father, Izzy, uh, now I begin to see uh, perhaps why Lee J. Cobb was cast, uh, as opposed to uh, Frederick March later in the film with Dustin Hoffman in a, in a, in a movie that uh, Volker Schlondorf made. Uh, you know, and, and it seems to me that Cobb was so overbearing, overpowering in a way, almost like Zero in, uh, in Fiddler, I can't get him out of my head. And I don't know if necessarily that was what he, Arthur had in mind. I, I, you know, Arthur didn't know uh, a lot about the theater. He'd only seen, when he, when he wrote his plays, he hadn't seen but one or two plays. Uh, and it, the, all, all the casting and, and, and also, it all is down to Kazan. Kazan. And okay. Kazan's feeling about, about, uh people and and how they uh, how they are they, how they bring the, their own emotional baggage to a to, it's like a pigment of paint uh, they how they color a role and so uh i i lee j cobb's power and his but also the sense of desperation or loss or confusion that he carried with that power that's all part of the texture of the role, but it's not Miller's choice, really. It's all it's all Kazan. I mean, yeah, Miller. You know, Kazan and Miller. First of all, they were they were like brothers because they had they shared the same past. They had they were the they were the the uh, darlings of their mothers. Their fathers were businessmen who didn't want them in the arts, didn't understand it. They they all they both had. Uh, unsteady marriages uh and they were both left wing so they they and they were very very close they saw each other during the time of the, the death of a salesman look every day just about and he was he was arty to them and he only became arthur miller after the success of of uh, death of a salesman he became a a, a figure a lincoln-esque I, I used to be Terry, and then I became Terrence. So. Yes, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Not to compare exactly. me with Arthur Miller, but the <laughs> exactly. Uh, going back to to salesman, you know, at at, at the time when I, I when I first read it, I'd seen it obviously, uh, not on in the theater, but in in the film version. Uh, I remember about buying a hardbound uh, copy of it, and I was in the Schmata business, and I was on the road, and I had a bad season. And I felt that maybe I was Willie Loman at 23. My life was almost over. Uh, and I came out of that generation from New York, from Brooklyn. If you're not going to be a doctor or a lawyer, uh, then you're going to be a salesman. You know, it's, you, you know, you had no that's other. A, there were no options, you know, for, for but, a Jewish yeah, kid in it, the 50s. But, you know, I think that I think that you're describing in yourself the very uh, the very climate of aimlessness and confusion and, and also your the drive to to define yourself to make a living the 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 constant litany of winning and you know to, if you're going to have big winners you got to have big losers that's mm -hmm. the that's the other side of it which is the way miller would frame his uh, socialistic ideas i mean in other words he's not giving you a lecture but it, within the context of this family story you're seeing in some ways the drama of capitalism he's not telling you 
what to think, but you're seeing people under the pressure of this these dynamic forces that capitalism creates. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. No, no, I, I absolutely. And, and uh, my father was a, a blue collar guy. I mean, that whole generation, we were the first generation that went to college. But uh, just to have a, just have a few minutes left. Uh, what what is the relevance today to that? Since we're not living that experience, you know, my children didn't grow up in that atmosphere. My whole generation just a few years. Oh, my you. gosh. I think I, I, I don't think it's changed in terms of the of course, it's ter- changed in terms of the general. Well, well the jobs we're, we're not in the, it, the garment the business. En- the envy still plays out even more important. The the culture is entirely distracted. It's distracted by movies, television, this, the and the, the these are all technologies of escape. Uh, the, the 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 this the sense of denial uh, in the culture. I mean, we've just li- spent four years living with a, 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 through a, pre- a a presidency which was built on uh, lying uh, to the public, denying, and are still we're talking as we're speaking. They want to deny the hi- their history. They want to not think. Uh, they want to uh, uh, they they want to kill thought. And that's what all my sons is about. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, you know, they the the uh, what is the crucible about? But refusing to think actively, and that's what we're living through. John, let me stop you there because we have about a minute to go on this particular recording. Uh, we could have three recordings, and there's so much to talk oh, about yeah. that we haven't talked about. Uh, just a, a final: What would you uh, want people who were not that familiar with Miller or hadn't even seen his work? Uh, to get from this book oh you know that's a i mean it's a it's a i have to say because i'm proud of this my publisher submitted it for a pulitzer prize and will i get it absolutely not but it's very nice the book is well written it's a story of a great life who contribute uh, about a man who contributed to the definition of what we think of modern America is. And it talks about the forces that make uh, the, ex- that, that go into the dark forces that go, that are transformed through the theater and playwriting to make light. And uh, once again, this is Terrence Galenter from, from Paris. Uh, visit my website, paris-expat.com for all information about culture in France. And once again, a, a big thank you to John Lahr. It's, it's, it's been a pleasure and a privilege, John, okay, uh, to, to actually speak to the son of the cowardly lion. Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining us. And please share your comments and suggestions at terrence at paris-expat.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E at paris-expat.com. And visit paris-expat.com to sign up for my five weekly newsletters about the City of Light. Until next time, à bientôt à Paris.